There are more than 344,000 clinical trials in the United States and in more than 20 other countries. These clinical trials are all different, but they have one goal in common, to be as productive as they can possibly be. Welcome to podcast two of CTO, the Clinical Trials Optimization Podcast. CTO is a twice-monthly podcast that brings together clinical research stakeholders to exchange ideas, share knowledge, and think creatively about how to oversee, manage, and optimize clinical trial planning and execution. The podcast includes discussions with clinical research industry thought leaders and practitioners about how the industry is transforming clinical research design and operations to speed up the delivery of life-changing therapies. I'm your host, Linda Sullivan, and I want to thank you for joining us on this exciting journey to raise the bar on clinical trials and provide an interactive forum for discussing what we do professionally every day of our lives. We hope you'll subscribe to CTO on your favorite podcast platform so you'll automatically get every episode in your feed for free. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the role of clinical trials in drug development with one of the giants in the field, who is also a colleague and friend of mine, the incomparable Ken Getz. Ken is the Deputy Director and Professor at the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, Tufts University School of Medicine, where he conducts research focusing on clinical development management and operating strategies and tactics, protocol design practices, and global outsourcing investigative site and patient recruiting practices and policies. He's also the chair of Syscript, a nonprofit organization that he founded to educate and raise public and patient awareness of the clinical research enterprise. A well-known speaker at conferences, symposia, universities, investigator meetings, and corporations, Ken has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals, books, and in the trade press, and writes a bi-monthly column nominated for a Neal Award in Applied Clinical Trials. He holds a number of board appointments in the private and public sectors, including WCG and ORA, and serves on the editorial boards of pharmaceutical medicine and therapeutic innovation and regulatory science. Ken received an MBA from the J.L. Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University and a bachelor's degree, Phi Beta Kappa, from Brandeis University. Ken is also the founder of CenterWatch, the leading publisher in the clinical trial industry. Welcome to CTO, Ken. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so glad that you're, you're here to join us to talk about clinical trial optimization. I doubt there's anybody listening to the podcast that's not familiar with the Tufts Center for the Study of Development, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the mission and how it started and really what the focus of the organization is today. Sure, and always appreciate a chance to talk about what we do Many people don't realize that the center is over 40 years old, and it's always essentially had the same mission, though where we focus has expanded over time. The mission overall is to provide robust, data-driven analysis and strategic insights that help drug development professionals, regulatory professionals, uh, policymakers, uh, improve the efficiency and the economics and the productivity of pharmaceutical R&D. And the, the center has such a rich history. It's testified before Congress. It's uh, been at major uh, regulatory and government agency meetings like uh, those that are, uh, that are produced by the NIH or the FDA, the Department of Defense Foundations, uh, the National Academy of Sciences. We often 
provide our data to help inform those discussions. It's really a very special place, a kind of a think tank for that uh, very high level, macro level view of what's happening in drug development and how we can optimize performance and economics. Well, I know we at MCC certainly use uh, some of the reports that you, you, you generate that has very helpful information and we, we often will use it as the foundation for discussions that we have around quality and efficiency. How does Tufts conduct these research studies? I mean, where do the topics come from? How do you get yeah. organizations to, to participate? So the topics, uh, where we come up with our ideas is one of those questions that everyone always asks us because we have great luck in oftentimes um, focusing on a topic that is has not quite become a hot topic. We just get there just beforehand. So by the time the industry sort of catches up, it looks like the Tufts Center has already done a, a basic or foundational project. Often these are actually brought to our attention by a really passionate individual in industry or working in a specific uh, stakeholder group. Uh, they'll come to us. And maybe our strength there is that we often have data sets that we can use or we have ideas for a methodology that we could uh, implement in order to start to answer that question. Sometimes the topics come to us uh, at a conference. You know, uh, not long ago when I attended one of the MCC programs, uh, someone brought up an issue or concern that sounded like a really important topic. And I brought that back to our team and we then turned that into another topical area. Many of these result in a working group model. So some of our projects are funded by a single source. It might be a foundation like the Gates Foundation, or it might be uh, from a group like Bio or the DIA. Other times uh, we will pull together a group of organizations that all contribute the funding. And those are that's our working group model, which is a great approach because now we have companies sharing their insights into how to best measure data that will help us answer the research question. And they'll even provide data that will then aggregate and to produce our benchmarks. So the working group model is a really important way that we address and evaluate a topic and gather valuable metrics. I think in the beginning, you had a lot of big pharma involved with your sponsored studies. Are you finding that you're getting organizations of all sizes coming in? So the results are more reflective of, of the industry, or are you still pretty much in that big pharma model? It's a really great point uh, because that is very much how the community that gets involved in our studies has changed over time. In the very, very beginning, when the center was first founded, Lou Lasagna, our founder, literally just approached a group of companies and asked them each to contribute dollars for essentially unrestricted uh, grants, and we just conducted our own research using those. Over time, we gravitated away from the more of that unrestricted grant model and moved to very targeted project-specific or study-specific grants. And initially, it was the larger companies. Now, it runs a gamut. We get a lot of smaller companies. We see a lot of contract service providers that come to us to participate in our studies a lot of the technology companies, 
Many that are funded by uh, VC and private equity, they'll even step forward to fund some of our work. So it's, re it's really quite a diverse community. We have, in some cases, even large uh, site networks now that will come to us on their own looking to get behind a study and, and uh, for the tough center process to pull together the companies that will ultimately contribute data. How long does it typically take from somebody comes with an idea, you kind of formulate how that a plan for how that would move forward until you publish results in these peer-reviewed journals where they show up? Is that a couple yeah. of years? or It does. Well, the peer review process alone probably adds uh, six months of time. And we try to put our publications into relatively, you know, high reach, high impact journals. And that's a condition of every study. We have to publish the results of every study. And that's understood by all the companies that are participating. It, it's sort of our way of being uh, educators to the research enterprise as a whole and sharing the lessons and the insights. The typical working group study may take eight or nine months of uh, sort of the data gathering piece. And then another four to six months to finalize the report of the findings and then develop the manuscripts and articles. And in some cases, the communication of our results may last for two or three years where we're just on the lecture circuit out there talking about uh, insights, cutting the data in new ways. So some projects sort of never end. They just uh, they, new questions emerge and we can go back and, and uh, interrogate the data set. Speaking of new research, what are some of the new studies that you're working on right now? At any given time, we're doing about 12 to 15 grant-funded projects. And just a couple, uh, we just finished one looking at study participant uh, diversity in clinical trials. And we've essentially benchmarked the level of underrepresentation of specific uh, participant subgroups by disease uh, uh, by disease condition. So that's just a really hot area. We just published the findings. We're doing a study now looking at updating all of our measures on uh, protocol, scientific and operating complexity. And uh, that's, uh, that's an area where we've literally been doing benchmark uh, work for close to 20 years. We just, uh, we're, we're in, involved in a study now looking at phase transition duration, trying to understand if you can compress the amount of time between when the critical path phase two stuff ends and the phase three pivotal trial begins. What, how do you compress that, that, what some companies call white space, that phase of transition duration? We're doing a study looking at gathering uh, development cycle time and a regulatory review and approval cycle time for drugs that target rare diseases or precision medicines. We're always doing work now uh, looking at different technologies like the use of AI and uh, some of the, the uh, data management technologies, including even virtual and remote data management uh, solutions. To that point, we've got a lot of companies that are looking for us to start to answer the question what impact does a remote uh, clinical team operating model have on clinical trial performance? And so we've just started a study there and we continue to gather data on um, measuring the impact and the return on investment for patient-centric initiatives. So just to give you a flavor for a lot of the areas where we're doing ongoing work. Well, I can't wait to hear the results of 
any of those studies. I mean, certainly at MCC, we do quite a bit of work in that protocol operational complexity space. And we know that it's something that is of great interest to to folks. And certainly as quality by design uh, efforts continue to get refined within organizations, anything that any of us can do to try to drive some of the complexity out of protocols to make it easier to recruit patients and to have patients stay in studies and be able to get them through to the end and get that data is so important. So important. And I have to say, I'm always so impressed with what the MCC has done in often taking a very sort of high level macro benchmark study and then really using those insights to drive meaningful practices and uh, approaches that companies can implement. So it's been really great to see how some of our work uh, is used as input into other work that's done. And uh, especially on the protocol complexity arena, there's just, that is just such a fertile area for optimization. Absolutely. Well, I will say, I'm, I'm very glad to hear you're doing something about white space, because that is a question that we get a lot at MCC, and it's not an area that we are currently uh, working in. And so I know that that's something that there's really quite a lot of interest in. And in terms of how do we drive optimization, that, that's a really important area to get a better handle on. And it's not just sort of how long does it take, but hopefully out of your, your work, there'll be some strategies and approaches for trying to accelerate um, the getting from bench to bed and getting that white space reduced. It's a really interesting area. And everyone I speak with tells me that they have thought about this. They've tried to measure it. It's not an easy environment to really gather data that can be benchmarked across uh, organizations. But there are lots of internal task forces that have really tried to tackle this issue. So we're, we're sort of excited now to have a sort of a, an evidence-based approach that um, perhaps will stimulate some discussion and maybe confirm what most organizations already know, that there's opportunity here and there may be some very specific insights that will help shape their practices moving forward. Well, that's great. Um, we're going to take a quick pause um, so I can tell you a little bit about the upcoming MCC Clinical Trials Summit, and then we'll come right back to our discussion with Ken. If you've enjoyed this discussion so far, please join us at the Clinical Trial Risk and Performance Management Virtual Summit taking place September 8 through 10, 2020. We've taken our successful face-to-face -face summit format and completely retooled it to deliver a unique, engaging, interactive, multimedia experience. Beginning on August 26th, you'll have access to pre-recorded case study presentations about quality by design and RBQM topics like protocol operational complexity, risk management during COVID-19, RBM monitoring metrics, monitoring virtual and remote trials, and much more. Additionally, industry experts will share insights about vendor management and site oversight, including how to select the right CRO metrics for your program, what quality metrics your organization should review, assessing the quality of your vendor relationships, and using risk-based approaches to select sites for restarting trials and conducting site audits. Then on September 8th, you'll move into the three-day virtual live portion of the summit. FDA keynote speaker, Dr. Jean Melinda, 
Senior Policy Advisor for the Division of Clinical Compliance and Evaluation in the Office of Scientific Investigation, CEDAR, we'll discuss how adoption of QBD and RBQM approaches are improving clinical trial quality. Next, you and other participants will gather in virtual breakout rooms to meet the pre-recorded session speakers and engage in facilitated community discussions about various risk and performance management topics. And some participants will opt to take it to the next level to roll up their sleeves and join a virtual working group to build a solution during the summit. Participants will prep for the working group by viewing a selection of pre-recorded presentations and gathering information prior to the live session. Topics to be explored in this format include centralized monitoring, KRIs, and QTLs. What do you measure? What's useful? Reassessing risks during study conduct. When and why? How to define and estimate IT system benefits before selection? And what are the most important questions about vendor performance that your organization seeks to answer? Finally, for those of you who participated in the summit in the past, let me reassure you that the data analytics team exercise, aka follow the data trail competition, will be run at the virtual summit. So don't miss this opportunity to participate in this unique event. It's time to meet your peers, collaborate, share ideas, and think. To register for the summit, visit www.mcc-summit.com. I want to make sure you got that. It's www.mcc-summit.com. And here's the kicker. If you subscribe to the CTO podcast, you can use discount code POD15 to receive 15% off your registration fee. That's right. Just subscribe and enter the code POD15 and you will receive 15% discount on registration. Visit www.mcc-summit.com for details today. Welcome back to my discussion with Ken Getz. So some of the areas that you mentioned earlier that you're actively uh, doing work in, in my mind, really start to come into play with this COVID situation. The AI, virtual, remote, I mean, all these things are, are areas that we've been having quite a lot of discussion about uh, within our community. Um, how do you think that COVID pandemic experience is going to reshape the way we design and execute our, our trials? Boy, we could spend so much time talking about this. My general position, and I, I believe you share this view, Linda, is that a lot of what the pandemic response has done is it's acted as a kind of a catalyst or a facilitator of changes that were largely underway. Uh, but they were stuck in sort of the perpetual pilot or proof of concept mode. So the pandemic has sort of forced us as an enterprise to look at so many areas that we sort of partitioned as little side projects, and we've now moved them into mainstream. And it has touched every area from the planning and design standpoint um, to the execution of our trials and using more remote uh, and virtual models, but all with an eye toward improving convenience, getting access to data faster, really making sure that uh, the patient's safety is uh, paramount. And then on the back end, uh, all of the data management uh, areas that are impacted now that we're collecting data and participation is uh, is unfolding in a very different way. 
if anything, what's perhaps the most um, startling is that we expect that the pandemic will actually accelerate higher levels of customization in our studies or the ability to be able to offer an even broader array of choices that can be used to support our clinical trials and that can be offered to patients. And of course, customization is typically the enemy of efficiency. Customization adds more complexity. So that's one of the uh, key areas that we're looking at is trying to understand how do we now manage those new uh, elements as well. Well, we've certainly um, been thinking about this from a protocol and operational complexity standpoint. We look at the burden that complexity has on a study team, on a site, and on a patient. And one of the, I think one of the interesting things about that flexibility, that mixture of remote visits, telemedicine, sending healthcare providers to uh, the homes of the patients, et cetera, well, on the one hand, it maybe increases the burden on the study team and on the site, but hopefully reduces the burden on the patient. So in terms of what are we learning here? It'll be very interesting to see if we're able to recruit patients more readily to participate in these new models, as well as we keep them in, that we don't lose them. That dreaded loss to follow-up uh, <laughs> area, right? Right. Well, you know, burden is a very interesting thing because it migrates in our trial execution. Burden has resided to a large extent initially with sort of the study monitor and to some extent the investigative site. And over time with a number of remote and risk-based approaches, the site felt that more burden was transitioning to them. And uh, as well, uh, as we looked more at gathering observational data and transitioning burden to the patient directly, it created even more participation burden uh, for them. Right now, we're trying to find solutions that help minimize that burden, and artificial intelligence may play a, a key role there, given the volume of data that we're collecting. Some of the new technologies, although they're very nascent, the hope is that they may capture some data in real time with a validated uh, uh, approach that uh, might minimize the site and the patient burden as well. So it, it's sort of an exciting time given some of these uh, new approaches that we can apply to a lot of our clinical trial activity. Well, I want to go back to uh, one of the areas that you mentioned earlier that the center is studying, and that's going back and looking more at protocol amendments and you know, measuring components of complexity, et cetera. I mean, those you, you guys sort of have established the, the cornerstone research on the impact that protocol design and complexity have on uh, the ability to execute studies and amendments and time having to be added on, et cetera. And so it sounds like you've now gathered some additional data to compare to see how things have changed over time. Do you have any sneak peek at what you might be seeing? Are, are things getting better? Are they not getting better? And then we can think about what if you were to collect that you know, data in six months and will COVID have really shifted uh, what's happening there? Yeah, it's. I always um, am impressed that just around the time you're looking for a sneak peek, um, we're we're getting to the point where we're going to be able to release some of our findings hot off the presses. And I think come the uh, MCC program, 
later this year, we're going to be in a position where we can really share insights. Right now, it's still data collection mode, and a lot of the companies are just getting started. I suspect that we're going to see higher levels of complexity, not lower. So I think we're going to see that despite the countless times we've demonstrated that greater complexity is associated with poorer performance in terms of recruitment and retention rates, cycle times, the incidence of amendments, I think we're still going to see that uh, the number of endpoints continues to grow uh, with a larger proportion that are tertiary and exploratory and miscellaneous in nature. Uh, You're going to see much, much more operating complexity, larger numbers of sites, more data sources. So I think that what we're going to see is that uh, complexity is to be expected. It will always increase. Our designs will always continue to become more sophisticated, and we just have to find even more effective ways to manage complexity over time. That complexity is not the enemy. It's really how we better manage it uh, going forward. And we've used a lot of really traditional approaches in the past. I'm hoping that some of these newer models uh, and quality by design and risk-based approaches, I'm hoping that some of that will become more mainstream and that will help us uh, manage complexity more effectively. So let's go back to what we're learning during the COVID pandemic. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing when we have discussions about it at the the consortium are, I agree totally, that the there were a lot of things that organizations were were trying in pilot phases, in particular centralized monitoring. Those that had it in place were much better positioned to be able to monitor and see what was going on. And so those that were piloting it are scrambling to to get them implemented pretty quickly. But there are other things, and and I think one of the things that we've heard had a lot of discussions about is related to the data management side, which is, you know, what is that endpoint data, the assessment data that you really need? You know, how do you keep track of what's missing? You know, did a visit happen, but the assessment data is missing? All these new nuances that they hadn't worried about very much were all starting to get get put in place. And as a result, there's a lot more discussion around what is must-have assessment data versus what is nice to have. It will be interesting to see if we get, you know, now we're talking about sort of pandemic proofing protocols. Um, and, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that we start to take some of that that tertiary endpoint data out? Do we start to see some of the complexity go down? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, this is one of those areas that has always sort of uh, been a bit of a surprise. Uh, We demonstrated really as early as 2010 that um, we need a better trade-off, right? That the nice-to-have data, if you believe that being able to reduce the number of procedures and endpoints and thereby simplifying the protocol will have the downstream effect of easing burden on uh, the site's administration of the protocol and the participation burden, then why not really challenge those nice-to-have endpoints and procedures? And um, why not start to look at the non-core data as really the most fertile place where we could really start to streamline and simplify our designs. And it just has not happened. So like you, I I believe that that trade-off is so essential and it's probably even more important now 
because we're given the incredible growth that we continue to see in terms of the complexity of our scientific designs and our operating models, we need to really follow through on some of these trade-offs. It's just not happening. So I remain on the fence, Linda. I'm hoping that next uh, study will show that because we're gathering a lot of performance data as well, that uh, indeed our cycle times and the variation around the mean cycle time is widening, that maybe there'll be a wake-up call and maybe we'll, we'll come to the point where we'll recognize that we've reached the maximum level of objectives and endpoints that we can hope to include in, in a single protocol. Well, we'll see. It'll be interesting. I, I wish you could finish what you're working on now and then just get everyone ready to give you data a year from now to see <laughs> what the before and after COVID effect and, and see whether it's actually reshaped the way we are designing studies. Yeah, it's um, we definitely will. We will revisit this. A lot of companies uh, in the current study really made it very clear that uh, they will only be able to provide protocol data up through basically 2019. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to need to revisit and we might even have to sort of accommodate a period uh, during the sort of pandemic response where we're gathering somewhat anomalous uh, practice, uh, unless it carries over even post pandemic. Yeah. Well, before we end, um, we're going to finish out the show with a new segment that we're calling the trio a set of three questions that we're going to ask every guest at the end of the podcast. So here we go. Here are the three questions I would like you to comment on in closing. Number one, what is the biggest challenge facing the clinical trial industry? You've talked about some of them already. What's the best new innovation that you've seen? And what's your top optimization takeaway? So I love, I love these. And I will say that I'm bound as an academic not to name a specific optimization, uh, innovation or optimization solution. So I'll talk more in general terms. And I'm really a broken record, Linda. It seems like so much of our discussion really came back to what I consider the largest challenge. And I, I really point to the design of our studies, our protocols as the blueprint that dictates all of the downstream operating activity that has to be executed in order to demonstrate efficacy and safety and support the uh, objectives of uh, every single program. So for me, the biggest challenge is the how we manage increasing complexity in order to achieve higher levels of efficiency, uh, in order to compress our timelines, because historically, all of those areas have suffered greatly. I think the best innovation in my mind, is more of a movement and a philosophy. And again, I'm a broken record. I have believed for a long time that the patient engagement movement represents probably the single most important innovation or change that could dramatically uh, improve the design of our studies with the patient at the heart of all we do and minimizing patient burden, improving patient convenience, relevance and the feasibility of our studies. And I use the patient engagement movement broadly. It includes not only patient perceptions and preferences and experiences, but includes it also includes all the solutions that we use to improve convenience and improve the patient experience. 
So that includes uh, remote and virtual approaches. It includes the home visits and um, essentially moving the clinical trial so that it can be conducted wherever and whenever the patient can best participate. And, and uh, so it, it implies more flexibility and customization on our part in order to best partner with the patient uh, in this process. So that's sort of the, the best innovation. And patient engagement also really speaks to uh, soliciting input from patients in the design of our studies. And it also means uh, creating the highest level of transparency, including the return of trial results to our study volunteers um, in plain language, which is another one of my uh, incredible uh, pet peeves that uh, I'm stunned that we still don't do that uniformly as an enterprise. So the top optimization opportunity really stems from those two areas. It's really how can we best uh, optimize our designs so that we support the patient engagement uh, and ultimately amplify the voice of the patient and uh, establish the patient as a real partner in the drug development process. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate spending the last half hour with you. As always, it's been an interesting conversation. I learn something every time you and I speak and uh, appreciate you providing some time to have this discussion. Also, uh, one of your associates will be at the MCC Summit. We'll be sharing results of a couple of uh, studies that Tufts has done. So we thank you for having Michael join us as that as well. Well, Linda, thank you as always so much for this opportunity and others to share our views. I have to say that your leadership in this area has always been so inspiring. So thanks so much for the privilege of being a part of your podcast program. Well, thank you. This concludes our podcast show. I want to thank our producer, Michael Levin Epstein. And finally, we want to hear from you. Rate us on iTunes. Are there topics you want us to be discussing? Guests that we absolutely have to have on the show? Well, let us know by emailing us at lsullivan at metricschampion.org. This is Linda Sullivan, and we'll see you next time on CTO, the Clinical Trials Optimization Podcast. Thank you.